0: Greetings and welcome to episode 9 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about what I believe is the most famous and, well, let's just be upfront and honest with what I think, the most awesome Confucian ever, Xunzi, who unfortunately has a name that's very difficult both to spell and pronounce, for people um, in the Western world. Uh, even if the Jesuits had wanted to Latinize this name, I really don't know how they would have done it. Shunshus <laughs> does not have the same ring as Mencius or Confuci- Confucius. Now, let's begin. Let's talk about shun's background, who this guy is, where he comes from. Um, if you look up his actual official dates, you're going to get something like 312 to 230 BC, something like that, which again gives us this impossibly long lifespan of over 80 years old. Not impossible for those days and age, but of course, very unlikely. But hey, uh, you know, some people did live live, live to be very, very old. Um, I always like to think of Confucius as someone who really gets a raw deal in comparison with Mencius. Uh, oftentimes, if you just sort of have, you know, one... One introduction to the ancient uh, Huaxia philosophers, you'll usually just learn that Mencius advocated that mankind was good, and Shunzi said mankind was evil. Um, and I like to sort of move beyond those buzzwords and give you a much greater context for what they're actually saying and why they believe these things, because it goes much deeper than just those little buzzwords. Shunzi um, is going to say that human nature is evil. Okay, and I do believe that this is, uh, you know, largely responsible for why he is not going to be nearly as famous or well well known as someone like Menchus is. Uh, Simply stated, no successful state is going to hold such a view up as the face of their rule to the general public. Okay, And because Shunzu will say that man is evil and must be coercively reigned in, he will actually have Great influence with what states actually do, okay, actual practice in laws and governing, okay, um, but he will not have great influence in how governments like to portray themselves to the general public and to posterity, public discourse. Right? Mencius will reign supreme in public discourse, but Sun will have actually a lot of influence, um with actual administrators, imperial administrators throughout all the empires and states for the next 2,000 years. He simply won't get a whole lot of public credit for his influence. Also, unfortunately, he's going to be associated with a school of thought that will get openly excoriated uh, by later generations of thinkers. Xunzi will have a, 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 a stu- two students, a man by the name of Li Si and Han Feidze, Han Feidze we're going to treat in detail in the next episode. Um, and these men will take Xunzi's ideas away, out of the abstract realm of Confucian ideology, and apply it in practice. And their, and their ideology will be known as legalism, and they'll be associated with the creation of the First Empire, the Qin Empire, and the First Emperor. All right, and they'll seize upon this man-is-evil concept, apply it to a large, faceless bureaucracy, and ultimately taint Xunzi's legacy by association. But Xunzi himself is not a legalist. Uh, he was a Confucian. And I believe that Xunzi is far more interesting and satisfying to read than is Mencius. Unlike Mencius, Xunzi goes on to describe a realistic vision for mitigating our evil natures. Okay, Mencius says, we're good, and we just need to do it. Nike slogan, right? Just do it. And, you know, listen to my philosophy, and I'll teach you how to just do it. It's pretty simple and straightforward, really. Okay, Shunzi is not going to say, we're good, and we should just do it. He'll acknowledge our shortcomings. He'll acknowledge our likely inability to just do it. Okay, that's wishful thinking, he says. And he'll look for a compromise middle ground that is just good enough. That's the anti-Nike slogan, right? Menchus, if it, 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 instead of Menchus says mankind is good and Shunza says mankind is evil, those two buzzwords, I'd prefer you take a buzzword slogan away instead. Menchus says just do it. Shunza says let's just be good enough. Come up with the program to be just good enough. And you can already see why corporations, institutions, governments, they can't really seize on that as a stirring, motivational, positive outlook on the future. And the continued uh, uh, perpetuation of their rule. Just good enough. (laughs) So Xunzi, to me, is the most complete and well-ordered treatment of the Confucian ideals. He provides the most systematic treatment of all the major concepts. Okay, he rejects all of Mozi, and all of Zhuangzi, uh, most of Mozi, <laughs> most. Uh, virtue is still there, uh, the infallibility of the ancient classics is still there, stuff like that. Uh, the person he rejects all of is Zhuangzi, okay, along with the other Confucians. They pretty much all reject Zhuangzi as well, although Xunzi will go farthest in directly repudiating him. They will say that the mind is not the source of all subjective values and suffering, The mind is the source of morality and order in the world. Things that are good in this world, derived from our mind. And that's what makes humans amazing. Okay, the mind is not something to be toyed with. You're not going to prove the illogicality of logic through logic and play a bunch of games here. The mind is responsible for all that is good in this world. But we need to overcome our more baser natures. Overcome our evilness and bring into being a harmonious world. And here's how we're actually going to do it. It's not just do it. It's much more complicated than that. Okay. Now, above all, students will put forth the conviction that study, hard, hard study, lots of sweat and lots of work are what creates that transcendent gentleman. Not any sort of magical Zen moment. Okay. Now, once created, once the gentleman perfects his inner nature and truly understands the world and how to create a harmonious society, then Shunza does talk about him as having almost magical powers, being able to transform society just by his being so perfect and being able to order society. Later on, Confucian ideology sometimes gets classified as a humanist religion, a humanist religion the idea being that humans, not gods, are most responsible for bringing the most perfect order into this world. And what you just need in a humanist religion, you need better men. You need to create better men. We need men to realize their full potential, and they will create the most perfect world that we can live in. But it's dependent on men. Nazism is also a humanist religion. Okay, It's not all teddy bears and fluff here. Okay, You can have humanist religions on either end of the spectrum. The Nazis also said that instead of gods, we need to bring the most perfect human beings into power, put them in power. Their idea of who the most perfect human being was, though, being racial, uh, meant that a lot of other people had to be targeted for extermination, and only a certain type of person could be perfected but once you perfect him, you put him into government and he will rule better than anyone else can rule. All right? These are humanist religions in which he, the humans have the godly potential within them, and they're the ones who bring the world to order. Now, at the heart of everything, at the beginning of all of Xunzi's ideas of how we're going to create the perfect world, learning is first and foremost. One of his earliest chapters is called Encouraging Learning. First line of Shunz's text says, quote, The gentleman says, learning should never cease. And he gives us an analogy of what this learning process is. He says, learning is the process of changing something by de- by, the application, by the deliberate application of force. The deliberate application of force changes the underlying substance of something from something that might be useful Uh, Sorry, not so useful into something that's useful. It improves the quality of what's being changed. And he says wood and steel, these are some of the examples that he gives us, can be straightened or grinded to be straight or sharp. A piece of wood might be all gnarled and bent like a tree branch to begin with. And the carpenter shaves it down. He twists it. He cuts it. He molds it into something that is useful and beneficial to humankind. All right, So you can see already the first analogy of learning is not, you know, some sort of coming, uh, you know, it's not a this benign view of learning as sitting at a book and absorbing knowledge. Learning is a coercive, at times, I wouldn't say violent, it's not violent, but it's coercive. It's not supposed to be fun. Learning is a painful process of deliberate human application of the force of our minds. And learning is what creates the difference, the distinction between barbarians and civilized gentlemen. He says the only difference between a barbarian and a civilized person is the transformation they experience via education. And he has this wonderful example in which he says, the babies of civilized people and the babies of the northern tribes cry the same cry at birth. What determines That one of these babies will grow up to be a barbarian and one will grow up to be a civilized person. In his view, of course. We don't have to subscribe to his logic of who's civilized and who's not. He says, only education causes them to differ in their later future customs in their life. And whether we could regard them as civilized or uncivilized. He says, the gentleman is by birth no different than any other man. But he has been transformed like grinding and shaving and cutting wood or molding metals. He's been transformed through deliberate, coercive learning that he probably doesn't want to engage in. It's not fun. It's not leisurely. It's hard work. And the body, the mind, resists it because it's an unnatural process. To give up learning is to be a beast. To give up learning entirely. Okay, it says humans differ from beasts in our knowledge of ritual and propriety, and those things are acquired through the process of difficult, unfun learning. Without knowledge of ritual and propriety that is gained through education, we revert to our base natures and desires. So you can see the community, the surroundings that a person subsists within are extremely important in Shuns' eyes. Okay, He, 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 he gives a, a, an example to illustrate this point. It's my favorite, hands down, my most favorite example in any of the ancient philosophers. He talks about an orchid root, an orchid root, a fragrant, the root of a fragrant flower. He says the orchid root, in, uh, initially, can go either way. It can be made into a, de- a delectable perfume, or... If you take this orchid root and soak it in urine, that's what he says. You take this root and you pee on it. It will become repellent. Well, duh. And so the lesson is that we must choose our surrounding communities well. We must surround ourselves with other learned people who will bring out the desire to improve ourselves through learning, which we probably wouldn't do otherwise. And therefore, the importance of having a learned teacher. Remember, Shunzi wants to be hired as the tutor for your son. the tutor for the king's son. That'll be a little more lucrative. He says, the classics, where all important knowledge resides, are not always self-evident. You must have a teacher who can explicate the proper interpretation of the passage from the classics. All right, Shunzi here, clearly attacking and rejecting wholesale Zhuangzi. None of this theory of perspective or relativity and the subjectivity of our mind and there's no moral constants in the world. He absolutely says there's moral constants in the world. And he absolutely sides with nurture over nature. Okay? We create the society that we live in and it all hinges on deliberate learning, which we don't want to do. And we have to find a way to force ourselves to do this. Like every other philosopher except for the Taoists, Zhuangzi also has a blind reverence for the ancient classics, the oldest texts, especially the odes, which is why we spent that whole episode on the odes. All the philosophers talk about the odes all the time and quote things from it. He says, quote, the book of documents is the record of government affairs. The odes, the repository of correct sounds and the rituals are the great basis of law and the foundation of precedence. Therefore, learning reaches its completion with the rituals, for they may be said to represent the highest point of the way and its power. These texts, the ancient Confucian classics, encompass all that is between heaven and earth. Remember, all knowledge worth knowing is in the classics. There are things that we don't know, but they aren't worth knowing. Now, what is the fruit of learning? If you follow Sun Tzu's prescription and you emphasize the importance of learning, based in the ancient classics, what will result? He says we will be able to order society properly. And he has this chapter called The Regulations of a King, in which he tells us this is how society will be ordered once you've imbibed the lessons, correct lessons, as I interpret them, from antiquity. And the recurrent theme here is how to create the proper social and political hierarchies in government. Shunzu puts forth a new criteria for promotion. He says, talent alone should decide promotions and demotions without delay. Okay, here he's following Mencius, the importance of labor of the mind being stronger and more important than labor of the hands. And yet, if you don't use your mind and your talents to benefit the people, you don't deserve the perks that you receive in high high positions of authority. Shunzi brings out the example of uh, a boat on the water. And he says, the boat is the ruler, and the water is the common people. The boat is kept afloat or tipped over by the water. And he even goes so far, and this is potentially seditious, he even goes so far as to say that the hereditary aristocracy, the people in power, should not just hand power from one generation to the next. Kings, dukes, and ministers should become commoners if they cannot adhere to proper ritual. And knowledge of the proper rituals. Okay, At a minimum, they must learn to teach the masses what is right and encourage them to do good, not evil. Human beings mostly have only average ability, and not everyone can become a gentleman. Shunzi recognizes the inequality that exists in our society. However, to Shunzi, inequality is not a bad thing. In fact, it's necessary. Not only is it necessary, inequality is what brings about the most noble of human qualities and allows us to achieve ever higher planes of social progress, he says. We cannot treat everyone the same. Resources are insufficient for everyone to be equal. Chaos will reign. He says, we have heaven and we have earth. Nature itself implies the naturalness of higher and lower statuses. Heaven is above earth. Okay? And so he says, two men of equal rank and talent cannot govern. Together. It's not going to work. Inequality is necessary for society to function. And on the surface, this sounds very elitist. But in my mind, Xunzi is just giving voice to the reality of our lives that we often don't acknowledge, especially today. We live in a world in which we're always trying to imagine that you know, there should be, or we're only a few steps away from some sort of equality, even if it's not there in reality. When in reality, every aspect of our lives is unequal. We all have unequal economic statuses, material possessions, unequal allotments of talent and intelligence and the you know, physical prowess, whatever it may be. And we're often born that way. Circumstance dictates a lot of it as well. Alright, and he says inequality is a fact and necessary for society to function. Can't have two kings. Won't work. Sometimes when I'm teaching, I often I, I try to come up come up with an example in my classroom and draw attention to something that is implicit. We all understand it, but it's unspoken because it would be unseemly to draw attention to it. But in the classroom, college classroom. Inequality dominates the way the class is held. The students come in, they sit down, and they are quiet unless they are given permission to talk. We don't like to think of it that way, but it's true. I'm the professor, I walk in, and I have the right to speak and lead the class and make every important decision about how that class period is going to be run. And if someone blurts out something in the middle of my lecture or my talk, it will be seen as inappropriate. Most people, on the unspoken assumption that there is inequality in the classroom and the status between the professor and the students, will raise their hand. And if I'm a good guy, I'll find an opportunity to raise on, to, to, to call on them, and they'll be able to talk. But I don't have to. And if I don't call on them, they can't talk. That's inequality. Could the classroom function if every single person in that classroom were equal and had the exact same status to speak when they wanted to and to dictate the agenda? I don't think it would function. And when you draw attention to the inherent inequality that dominates our lives, it makes you sound like an elitist. But I think Shunz is just telling the truth, that the world is unequal. And he's suggesting that if we all have true equality, it'll be pretty difficult for society to function. Now, I'm not going to take the dangerous step of going that far and saying, oh yeah, Shunz is right there. But I absolutely would second his point that inequality is rife in our lives. And sometimes, he says, the world just can't function unless we have unequal statuses. Okay. He quotes then the ancients, the book of documents. And he says, equality is based upon inequality. How can that be? How can equality be based upon inequality? He says, the good people will be the people who do good who have taught themselves to do good through learning, because we don't have that inherently within us to do good, the good will be raised up based on their talent, they'll be promoted to look after the people. And then the people will achieve a certain amount of material benefits. That's the equality he's talking about. As a result of having good people in power. Heaven, he says, produces gentlemen, the Confucian gentlemen, and gentlemen bring order to the earth. He also says inequality is what explains why man, humankind, is the most noble being on earth. He gives many examples of animals that have a single admirable trait. He says the ox is stronger than humans, the horse is faster than humans, but they both work for us, we don't work for them. Only man possesses all the essential traits to be lord of the world. What does humankind do? We organize ourselves into a society. But not just that, we organize ourselves into a society that is based on an explicit social hierarchy. We have a a hierarchy and that hierarchy is unequal. And he says every single marvelous thing that humankind has ever done is the result of inequality and adherence to the political hierarchy that exists in our society. A good ideal ruler will be able to organize all those below him to act benevolently on the basis of inequality. Everyone knows their station. Everyone knows their role. And they don't profess or aspire to equality with people who are higher than them. Okay? Talks a lot about the rights. Rituals. All the Confucians talk a lot about rights and rituals. Extremely important. Remember, I said that there's eventually going to be a Ministry of Rights in the Chinese imperial bureaucracy. And the Ministry of Rights is in charge of schools, the civil service exam system. It's in charge of learning. Because as Xunzi says, to learn is to learn the rights. What does it mean to learn the rights? What do you do with the rights? The rights help you bring order. To the world, and up to this point, we've talked about this only in vague fashion. Now we're going to get a little more specific. Shunzi says the source of disorder and chaos in the world is unsatiated human desires. Humans are born with desires. We want things. We need things. We have cravings. We have yearnings. We have base desires. And he says the ancients, knowing this and its potential for chaos created the rights in order to control and channel our very dangerous and destabilizing desires. Okay. And there's different rights for the different economic classes of society with different material implements and accessories that have to be used in those rights. The rich people have more elaborate rights with more expensive implements that are involved in those rituals. Okay. Okay. And if everyone performs the rituals that are involved in interacting with other human beings, our human desires, which contain the potential for the world to be in chaos, will be governed. They'll be tamed, to put it another way. Okay. What happens if society is not governed by rights that teach us how to interact with other human beings in every conceivable situation? Well, he gets a little bit of Freud, a little bit of psychoanalysis here, two thousand years before Freud will do it. He says, desires that are not properly handled and perturbed emotions will manifest themselves in ways both perverse and dangerous to society. Then he gives the example of one of the most famous rituals in the life cycle of human beings, the funeral. You could also talk about the coming of age ceremony, marriage ceremony, whatever. He talks about funerals. Let me give you an example of what he means about how important rites and rituals are to the creation and maintenance of a stable civilization. He says, all Confucians would say, this is the difference between us and the barbarian nomadic peoples. They don't have rites, he would say. And therefore, they give free reign to their passions. They don't properly govern their emotions. And that's why they're so fierce and unrestrained and warlike. So funerals, it says funerals are not just about properly ferrying the dead to the next world and making sure they get to their next destination. It's also to give closure to the living. It says the purpose of a funeral is that the mourners, the people who are sad, who have lost someone, will be forced to go through the necessary steps to safely regulate potentially combustible emotions that should not be suppressed. Okay, he says, first, as part of the funeral, here's what you have to do. You have to disguise the ugliness of the corpse so as to enable proper filial devotion to it. You need to express that filial devotion to your father's corpse after he's dead. But this is difficult to do if it's a decaying corpse and all morbid and disgusting and gross with boils all over and discoloration, and swelling, and weird stuff, then your father's body will repel you. It will inspire only revulsion, and it will alienate the mourners. So disguise the ugliness of the dead body. Make it look good. Put on the best clothes, makeup, embalm the body, make it look good. So you can still have the pretense as if they look like they looked when they were alive. Next, you must treat the dead as if he were still living. His hair should be done. The body should be washed. There should be a meal prepared on the side. Next to the coffin. Okay. Why do we go about all of these things? All of these rituals? So we can facilitate recognition that the departed will no longer use these things. You have recreated the appearance that this person is alive and is being treated and living as though they are alive and well. You have a meal set to the side. They look good. They're dressed in their fi- in their finest clothes. And yet they're dead. Their eyes are closed and they don't get up and act like living human beings do. And he says, once you see this, the realization will hit you like a brick and you will ball your eyes out. You will have the necessary grieving process that you need to go through. And what Xunz is trying to say here, basically is saying we need to come up with a system that makes sure that no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what part of society we're from, how busy we are, you know, what distracted, poor, rich, whatever. We need to have a, a, a reliable, systematic standard for how to make everyone go through the necessary grieving process. So that they don't have unresolved passions or emotions bottled up within them. Because if you do that, if you don't properly deal with the necessary emotions, then we'll just be like the barbarians. They'll come out at any moment and we'll fight each other. We'll get angry with each other. Our lust will come out unrestrained. And we will not be civilized anymore. And he says, this is what the importance is of having a proper funeral. Now, this is all in theory, abstract theory, okay? In practice, of course, there's going to be a ton of use and abuse of these ideals. You'll have Confucians who say, you need me to have a proper ceremony, and I'll do this and this and that, and charge you an arm and a leg. And deceive you into making you think you got to do all kinds of things that you really don't need. But the ideal is still, it's got good intentions. All right, help both the grievers come to terms with what they need to come to terms with when someone dies. It's a transition point for both living and dead, not just the dead. I experienced this myself when I was 18 years old. My grandfather died. The first first grandparent who had actually died was the first major real death that I had ever experienced in my life. I was 17, 18 years old in high school. And I was absorbed with the upcoming graduation, my girlfriend at the time, the morass of daily life, you know? And we flew down from Seattle to California, you know, around, you know, the house for several days, preparations for the funeral. And I remember, I wasn't feeling it. didn't have any particular feeling about what was going on. My grandfather was not there, but it didn't hit me. The emotional impact didn't hit me at all. I was still, I remember thinking of just, you know, the stuff going on in my life. I, I, I was consumed with it. I wasn't ready to grieve, to put it in that way. And I remember very, it, it was an incredible moment. He got to the actual funeral home where the ceremony was going to be. And carried in the coffin and whatnot. I was one of the pallbearers, carried in the coffin. Still not really feeling it. It wasn't really real to me. And then I remember you walk inside. They've set the casket up on the very front and they've opened it so you can see the grandfather. And he's all, like Shunzu suggested, he's all made up and everything, you know? He's embalmed. They make him look as good as possible. There's nothing objectionable about the scene. There's flowers around. There's a program. It's all just so official and solemn. And I remember, still not feeling anything, walk through the door of that church. And I saw the cat—the open casket in the distance at the front of the altar for the first time. And I thought. Grandpa's in there. It was the first time I'd seen the body. I was still from a distance, but right there, the emotion, the 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 solemnity of the occasion—what was really going on—hit me like a ton of bricks. I couldn't believe it. Totally involuntarily, I started to bawl my eyes out. And I was just as stunned as anyone else. I remember, my brother bawled his eyes out as well. Even though neither of us had really been feeling sad over the previous week, suddenly right then I went in and I saw my grandpa up there and I realized, he's gone. This is really it. And the ritual, the ceremony, the things that I was forced to go through, despite myself, they all ensured that no matter what else was distracting me, whatever time of my life I was in, whether I'm ready to grieve or not, it ensured that I would go through the necessary grieving process to deal with and process the death of my grandfather. And Shunzu would say, that is an essential part of the grieving process. You must have that. And if you don't go through the proper grieving process, it will be bottled up, it will be suppressed, and it will come out in some bad way in your future. It will adversely affect you, and probably eventually adversely affect other people as well. And that's the importance of the ritual. And in this particular case, the importance of the funeral as ritual that forces you to go through the emotions that are potentially combustible emotions. And here's how we safely regulate them through the rites. And so he discusses the proper length of how long of how long someone should mourn the dead. How long should you mourn your mother? How long should you mourn your father, your sister, your brother, your cousin, your wife, whatever according to the importance of the relationship, the practicality involved, and most importantly, he says, these lengths of mourning and the things you need to do, the rituals you need to go through, they reflect natural laws. Okay, and this is why we mourn the longest when our king does, because he's the most important person in the land. So he deserves the longest period of mourning and the most elaborate show of our grief. Because unfortunately, people die at inconvenient times. We may not be ready to grieve when they happen to die, but the rites will ensure that you will grieve, truly grieve, feel the real emotion, whether you're ready to or not, and that those emotions don't get suppressed. He takes this idea over into a discussion of music as well. Music was something that a lot of the Confucians talked a lot about, actually. It comes, comes as sort of a surprise. We don't expect them to be talking about music. Music was very important to them. Remember, Confucius railed against the, the improper music as he saw it, that was accompanying the odes in his lifetime is this isn't the proper music and if you have the wrong music we'll have licentious desires come to the come to the fore. So Shunzi addresses music. He has a whole chapter on a discussion of music and he says what we need to do is we need to regulate the joy that human beings need to experience. Remember I talked about Mencius and some of the others as being deadly serious men. Confuci- uh, Shunzi acknowledges that man must have his joy but that this joy can get out of hand so he wants to come up with a way to safely regulate joyous emotions just like we need to feel grief and sorrow and sadness when dad or grandpa dies or mom or grandma whoever it's very important you feel that true grief whether you're ready to feel it or not on the opposite end of the spectrum we also must have our joy but it needs to be channeled in the proper way so as to contribute to the harmony of society at large. He says, quote, Man must have his joy, and joy must have its expression. But if that expression is not guided by the principles of the way, then it will inevitably become disordered. The former kings hated such disorder, and therefore they created the musical forms of the odes and hymns in order to guide it. In this way, They made certain that the voice would fully express the feelings of joy without becoming wild and abandoned. It's a perfect example of the role that music should play. Funerals and their rites teach you how to deal with grief and sorrow and sadness. Proper music will teach you how to deal with joy and happiness without going into improper areas that will destabilize society or your relationships with other human beings proper music, the performance of music, and the words, and the poetry, and the song, and the lyrics that go with it, allows for the virtual reenactment and vicarious experience of pretty much all the emotions of life. You can reenact in vicarious form for your listeners. War, a story, a, a poem sung to music about a mythical war, friendship, love, sorrow, in a safe environment, and help you regulate the excesses that can often come with unrestrained emotion or passions. This leads Shunza to conclude that music is the most effective means to govern men, he says. It regulates our emotions so they can participate in society. Finally, Shunza saves for the end his most splashy statement, also the one that will hurt his legacy the most. The chapter is called, aptly, Man's Nature is Evil, the chapter that stains Shunzi's legacy forever and prevents him from being a candidate for canonization by any state or dynasty or empire because no one's going to say, you guys are evil (laughs) and we're going to change you even if we have to whip you into shape. We're going to make you better. No, 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 no. They go with Mencius. You guys are good. You're just a little lazy (laughs) we'll teach you. How to realize your goodness. Okay. I don't like to think of Shunzi as a pessimist. I think of him as an optimistic realist. Whereas Menchus to me. Is totally impractical. An impractical idealist. So Shunzi says. That man is born evil. With a fondness for profit. There it is. That's the statement. Man is born evil. With a fondness for profit. Left unchecked. This will lead to wrangling and strife. Okay, he says, responding to Mencius, if man were truly born good, then the ancients in their infinite wisdom wouldn't have seen fit to leave us all these self-help books. The book of documents, the book of odes, the book of rites. If man was born good, why do we have all these things written by the ancients that basically teach us how to become better and how to regulate our emotions? So clearly man can't be good or else you wouldn't need all these self-help books, i.e. the Confucian classics. He says, good is the result of conscious activity following a deliberate and coercive transformation by a teacher who is properly versed in the rites and in music. And he again repeats the analogy of beating metal and wood into useful shapes. Remember, this is not a gentle, enjoyable process. learning. The analogy to learning is beating and shaping metal in the forge or cutting wood and pounding it into shape. That's what learning is to the human mind. It says the classics, the ancient books, which I interpret for you, on the rites, the rituals that they contain, the music that they refer to, they were created by the ancients to curb our evil nature. Shunzi actually disagrees with some of the other Confucian thinkers. Many of the other Confucian thinkers, they would say filial piety is the best program for how to regulate society because it's it's the most natural one. It's in accord with natural principles. Of course we're going to love our father and mother most, more than we love someone else's mother and father. That's natural. No, 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 no. Shunzi says that filial piety is extremely unnatural. It goes against man's desires to please himself first. We all want to please ourselves. Individuals, we're selfish individuals who want to please ourselves first. He says, we have to learn filial piety. Why do you constantly see parents scolding their kids, being disappointed in the way their kids turned out? Because kids don't naturally subscribe to filial piety, Shunza says. It's unnatural. Because we all want to please ourselves first. We have to learn filial piety, make a deliberate, difficult effort to learn filial piety, and admonish those who don't practice filial piety and most people don't practice filial piety because it is unnatural and is something you have to learn. Now this belief in in, in man's evil nature contributes to Schopenhauer's overwhelming pragmatism. Everyone, he says, is capable of change, but not everyone will change. And so it is up to the superhuman gentleman versed in the classics, to learn how to teach everyone else to learn and to order society and make sure the benevolent inequality continues to exist and is not interrupted. Shunzu wants a world that is good enough. He knows the Golden Age won't return. Mencius seems to think that we can recreate the Golden Age. Shunzi, isn't that optimistic. We've seen enough of the warring states era now. People have been slaughtering people in unimaginable scales for 200 years now, I assume this time. all right? And there seems to be no end in sight. There's no naive belief here that the golden age is ever coming back. We, we have fallen. We are in a fallen state. But he still thinks that we can create a world that's good enough. Unfortunately, good enough is not as stirring a slogan as just do it, and man is good. So, Xunzi sort of finish with our takeaway point here. Xunzi provides the most systematic and the most fleshed-out Confucian ideology. All right? All, Confucius, Mencius—they talk about rights, they talk about learning—but Xunzi really—they they, they talk about music—but Xunzi is really the one who has a whole chapter devoted to these things and picks them apart in detail. Through logic, of course, and he doesn't just rely on these emotional these emotional anecdotes that Menchus does. He's really systematic. Okay, you can sit down with Menchus and really pick it apart, and you know get a lot out of it for hours upon hours. But Sun Tzu also was a largely a failed shur who did not get the ear of a king. He was never hired as an influential advisor to a king. He had students. He had influential students who did get the ear of a king. So next time, we're going to, we're going to talk about the influence of one of Xunzi's students. Xunzi himself is just as much a professional failure as the other Shurs. But his legacy will be propagated and inserted into actual government policy through one of his students, Han Feize, and the legalists. The last school of thought that we need to become familiar with before we're going to finally move on to other topics. Han Feitze will translate Shunze's abstract ideas into concrete government policy and was forever condemned by the Confucians as a result and brought down Shunze with him. Please join me next time for Han Feitze and the First Emperor. <laughs>